Hi, welcome back to the Flourish Travel Health Podcast. Thanks for tuning in with us this week. This week, Jaden and I will be discussing Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Yeah, although it's not currently making headlines, the disease is definitely something that could become relevant again. So what is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome? So, by the way, yeah, we, we typically call it MERS just for obvious, easy reasons. So yes. gonna keep talking. I'm going to keep going with MERS from here on out. So it is a type of coronavirus. So this was a virus that we had run across. And yeah, you know, some people had, had originally thought this could potentially have turned into a pandemic. But what we know right now about it is it is passed on to humans from camels or other humped animals. The first known case, I believe, was April 2012 in Jordan. And there have been 25, 2600 lab confirmed cases, about 890 deaths. The fatality rate on this is really quite high. Like what the, the numbers you crunched here were about 37%. So it's something that if you get it, death rate is significant. So also in, in your numbers here, 84% of cases have occurred or originated in Saudi Arabia, and there have been secondary cases in healthcare settings. And the largest outbreak that we've seen outside of the Arabian Peninsula was in South Korea in 2015 from a traveler who had been in the Arabian Peninsula, which caused about 200 cases. So this is not something which has been huge, massive numbers, but the fatality rate is kind of a little scary. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's what is the most concerning about MERS in general. It's just that it has that high case fatality rate. So how is MERS spread and what are the symptoms? Okay, so we know that camels are kind of the initial reservoir for MERS. And one way that you can catch it is by inhaling aerosolized respiratory fluids or body fluids, like even nasal or eye secretions. So basically, if a camel sneezes on you or you get secretions from a camel, if you either inhale it, the aerosolized version of that, or I don't know, potentially drink it, I'm not exactly sure how that would work. But the human to human transmission method is not quite as clear. We think right now, probably how it's been spread in healthcare settings has just been a lack of proper infection control measures. You know, we're thinking in regards to direct contact with surfaces. And I think, Jaden, you had in here that they think that maybe it could have been else. It could stay on surfaces for a month, which I didn't know that. It sounds hard to believe, but sure, let's go with it. I'm, I'm not going to argue the research, but I'm surprised with that. And a couple other things about this that are a little bit odd and I, is two-thirds of the cases have been in men so i don't know if that means that there are more males that are hanging around camels in close contact with camels or, or or what the relationship is there but it's it seems to be statistically significant and as far as other bits of information about sort of what it is an incubation period and stuff incubation period is about five days so usually about four days between symptom onset and hospitalization 21 percent of cases mild you know cough fever shortness of breath but half of people will get pneumonia which can really go into like an acute respiratory distress syndrome and organ failure septic shock 30 percent of cases will have some kind of GI distress of some sort, like your, your nausea, diarrhea, vomiting. And about 50% of adult symptomatic cases will require ICU care, including, you know, more, a higher percentage of that, or that will require intubation. So I, I guess what I really think the real take-home message, and I, we've already kind of mentioned it, I've already mentioned it a couple of times, is that if you are unfortunate enough to get this, the chances of getting really sick and dying are significantly higher than COVID-19, for example.
Definitely, yeah. And it seems like the type of thing that could quickly overwhelm a hospital system. I think that's that's safe to assume, yes. Definitely. Okay. What would you say the risk factors are for acquiring MERS? From a Canadian perspective, sitting here as a couple of Canadians, probably since we know every case has originated in the Arabian Peninsula, travel to that area would increase your risk uh, rather substantially because there's no evidence at this point in time that MERS is the only way um, you're going to get MERS in Canada is if someone from the Arabian Peninsula brings it and passes it on. Direct contact with camels or other individuals who frequently interact with camels. Uh, and I guess this you know, could even include you know, droppings, um, milk, meat, carcasses, and yeah, like close contact with anyone who's been diagnosed. And for whatever reasons, if you're in your 50s, that seems to be the highest risk of primary infection in the 30s for secondary cases. And also that age group of the 50s seems to have the highest amount of deaths. So I, I'm not exactly sure how to completely interpret that, but that's what the numbers show at this point. And I think you know, it kind of goes without saying, but let's, let's say it anyway, anyone who's immunocompromised has underlying health conditions as a smoker pregnant, they're going to be at higher risk just because of their existing baseline, uh, baseline medical health. Yeah, that 50 to 59 type of group just seemed statistically to have higher risk of a primary infection and highest risk of death. That was just data that was collected by the World Health Organization. It wasn't necessarily something that was specifically contextualized, but I would assume based on just kind of like risk factors due to age and that sort of group having highest contact with camels and other sort of humped animals, that would be the reason. Yeah, like I, I, I would agree with that just based on the fact that like I haven't been to the Arabian Peninsula myself, but I would presume that far more likely that there are going to be like men in their 50s that are going to be spending close contact with camels as opposed to females in their 20s, right? Just because of the nature of who takes care of camels and that sort of thing. So I think you can kind of, you know, part of that is just who's potentially exposed. But uh, yeah, it's there. It's kind of interesting. But yeah, it's hard to know exactly how to, how to interpret all of it. But we have numbers that show these people have been at higher risk. I, I think we heed those. Definitely. So what can be done to prevent the spread of MERS? So I think when you, you think about this, you want to think about your basic uh, hand hygiene, coughing, sneezing etiquette. You want to avoid close contact consumption of camels. If you're going to this part of the world, you need to remember that infection control standards may not be as good as maybe what we're familiar with. So that would always be a concern. So I think those would be things to do. I think, you know, sort of the bottom line here is if you're there and you want to have the opportunity to go on some kind of camel ride or something like that, may not be a, a total deal breaker to not do that. But I wouldn't spend a lot of time getting in the camel's face and I wouldn't spend a lot of time, you know, being in real close contact with them. And and, and I'm as far as eating a camel, I guess I'm not aware of whether camels are, are typically eaten, but I probably wouldn't be doing that anyway. But I think, yeah, maybe good advice to not eat camel. Yeah, that's <laughs> kind of been the, uh, the, the recommendation is not to consume any undercooked camel meat or any unpasteurized milk from the camels. So actually, that's interesting, because I would think it would be far more likely that drinking unpasteurized camel milk would be that I could imagine I can easily mentally connect the dots to that happening. And that being a risk. As mm -hmm. opposed to say eating cooked camel meat or undercooked, would you? I don't know. Is <laughs> Jane? I'm going to go off on her. Is 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 
rare camel meat the preferred way of eating camel or is it or do you, you usually prefer your camel to be a little bit more well done i have no idea whether a camel would be uh white or red meat so i don't know w whether it's something that is often cooked to you can say you know can i can i have it medium rare i'm not i'm not exactly sure but that was that was something that was emphasized is that like you need to make sure that it's fully cooked or don't eat it at all okay you know what yeah. you know what i you know what i can hear right now what? I can hear all of our listeners Googling camel meat right now and seeing how to seeing seeing how <laughs> it is traditionally eaten. Yeah, I wouldn't oh. I wouldn't necessarily know the answer to that question. But yeah, that's something that, you know, and I mean, in general, when you're traveling, you want to ensure that you're eating meats, especially that have been fully cooked. That's Absolutely. one of the biggest like preventers of travelers diarrhea as well. Absolutely. I, I think that you that would be something I'd always be looking at no matter no matter what it is. And yeah, but even more important, even more important here. But yes, I agree. Definitely. Okay. So why do you think that MERS has been relatively well controlled versus something like SARS or obviously COVID? I think they're definitely like when I heard about MERS and, and you know, I'm there are people that are listening that maybe have a, a travel health and medical background that have some level of awareness of MERS. Uh, but, you know, I think the general public, it it never really, when it was sort of more in the quote unquote news, it never really went mainstream. It was sort of a problem that was primarily far away on the other side of the world. And, and, and there, you know, were very limited cases, I think, that have ever really, you know, been on the shores of North America. So, but I remember when this had originally come out uh, and uh, I was like, ooh, this could like turn into something. And, you know, could this be... Could this turn into some kind of pandemic or something like that? And I'm like, seemed like it could be possible, but it never really did. It never got to that point. So, but, you know, I kind of had the same thoughts when COVID-19 started. I was like, oh, this kind of sounds like MERS, you know, it, it wonder if it's going to go the MERS direction or it will go in more of a significant direction. And well, we saw what happened. But I guess right now, there's always the concern about a new mutation, a new strain that's more easily transmittable. I think the one thing that we can kind of glean from what we know is that this is not something which is super highly transmittable in its in its current form. But if you know, is the potential there that that could change? Sure, absolutely. And that could turn into a real problem potentially. Definitely. Yeah, this is one that kind of lingers in the back of my mind when I think about, you know, horrible potential human disasters. Well, definitely this would be like if if this would have been the pandemic, it would have it would have been much worse, right? Because the death rate is just even if the death rate didn't go in that thirty-ish percent range, even if it was half of that, that's a way higher death rate than than COVID nineteen. So like way higher. <laughs> so yeah. so that would be like really catastrophic, and I, I can't even imagine what that would look like. But it it'd be really bad for sure. Definitely. Okay. Anything else you want to mention or chat about? The only thing I'll mention, and this is something where I'm going to kind of just throw out a random bit of knowledge that is not fully formed, but, you know, we always tend to talk about vaccines. So there was talk about MERS vaccine becoming available. And uh, I remember going back to the whole thing when COVID-19 started, the AstraZeneca was working on a MERS vaccine. And that's one of the, the reasons why they were so quick out of the gate to uh, working on their COVID vaccine was because they basically took their MERS vaccine, which was, as I understand it, was pretty much at the point where 
it was ready for human trials and had gone that far down the road and they just resequenced it instead of the MERS vaccine they are sort of instead of the MERS virus they they used COVID-19 virus so they essentially did some switching around of the genetic sequencing and then that's why they had a vaccine so so early now I don't know what really became of the MERS vaccine, whether it was just shelved as a result of, you know, the pandemic, or if that's something which is still on the radar screen for AstraZeneca or some other company. But but I guess it's, I'm just throwing it out there that there has been research on a vaccine in the past. Uh, whether, where we're at at this moment, I'm not familiar, but I guess it's theoretically possible that at some point there could be a MERS vaccine we could be working on. Well, that is very interesting that we were able to kind of transition from one to the other in when that became necessary. Yeah, uh, it, it is. And, and there, I actually read a, a media, like a, an article about this. And I, you know, it was really, I thought it was interesting because uh, once they did the genetic sequence of COVID-19, my understanding was this was kind of like very, very early on that the researchers at the Oxford lab that is the AstraZeneca Oxford lab there, they basically worked night and day trying to reformulate and like understand the sequence and do this. And they worked on this like night and day for weeks and weeks and until they had got it to a point where they were able to sort of go in and, and, and make those changes. So yeah, I, like I said, if it was an interesting article to read how they were able to, to pull it off so quickly. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that that's, uh, that's, that's a big deal in terms of the new kind of like technology that we're using the mRNA sequencing and that sort of thing for for these neuro vaccines that is that are coming out. For sure. But uh, one thing I'll just mention is that AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, not an mRNA, not an mRNA vaccine, but they basically, it's one of these uh, viral vector vaccines where right. they're using the, what was it, the the, monk, the primate uh, cold virus as the carrier. And, and, and so, yeah, they, they essentially kept all that part the same, just the genetic sequencing. But yeah, you're, you're totally right on the money with that. Like we could see the, the development of new vaccines for, for new pandemics or upcoming concerns, the, the process now that we kind of have in place, we potentially can, can make things happen uh, much faster than we could uh, at one point, for sure. Yeah, I would hope that if MERS were to have some sort of potential here for larger scale spread that that we would be able to kind of spring into action. You know, I, I can easily sort of mentally, you know, connect the dots there that that could happen. So I, I guess we'll hopefully we're not going to have to worry about it. But I, yeah, I, I think it's definitely something that might be possible. Definitely. Yeah. There's a couple of things floating around right now that potentially have have yeah. scaling potential, unfortunately. So so I don't know anyway, I don't want to spend too much time talking about monkeypox, but I don't know if you heard, Jaden, uh, we haven't even talked about this in advance. They announced the first case of monkeypox in Alberta yesterday. So. Uh-oh. And it was from, I believe, somebody who, I my understanding, I think they were, they acquired it outside of Alberta, I think, in Quebec, but I'm not completely sure about that. But anyway, we do have a we do have a monkeypox case here in, in, in Alberta as of uh, uh, the day we're recording this, uh, June 3rd. Well, they... Uh... That's wow. Well, they better get the the Monsters Inc. quarantine protocol going pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, would... I, I didn't read too much about it, but I do know that there was um, uh, it was announced yesterday, last, uh, yesterday evening, I believe. And I don't know too much of the details. I don't think they gave too, too many details, but yeah. Anyway, 
Definitely. All right. Well, anything else you want to mention? No, I, I think this really is kind of a scary illness and, and I hope it just kind of stays the way it is or, 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 or lessens because if this, if this ever figured out a way to mutate, we could be, in, we could be in big trouble, but uh, uh, probably worth talking about is, is something that we have talked about in the past on people doing travel consults. You know, of course, there isn't a lot you can tell someone if they're going to this part of the world, because we talk about the main way to avoid it is not to go that part of the world. Well, that's already been decided. So I know we've talked about that, the hygiene and the, and, and that sort of thing. So it is something which does come up, but uh, yeah, we don't have, have a lot of specific remedies beyond that. Right. Okay. Well, thank you for tuning into this week's edition of the Polaris Travel Health Podcast. A reminder that the information and advice provided in this podcast are not a substitute for live medical advice tailored to your itinerary and your medical history. If you have questions or you'd like to book an appointment, please head over to our website, www.polaristravelclinic.ca. Check us out on Twitter at Polaris Travel RX and our Facebook page as well. We hope you'll tune in again with us next week. Thanks, Jaden. Thank you.